Hi, everybody. My name's Larry, and I'm an alcoholic. And uh, I'd like to thank you guys for having me uh, out this weekend. Um, I uh, thank Barbara and Nancy and Irene. I think we've thanked about everybody in the damn room so far. So uh, I want to bring out the janitors. Uh, uh, but uh, are there any coffee makers in the room? These are the most important people in the room. If you've never been to a meeting without coffee, you know exactly what I talk about. Um, I'm happy to be here. My sponsor tells me that I'm living proof that a man can stay sober for a little over 32 years and not amount to a damn thing. So I, <laughs> I don't know where you think you're going if you're new, but uh, the highest I've ever gotten here is sober, basic human being, active member of my own home group which is as high as I need to get. I've sponsored some fellows who have gotten higher than that, and I can't find them, you know. I, maybe they're in the region. I don't know where they're at, but uh, I'm glad to be. I want to thank uh, uh, Bruce and Skip, if they're in the room, for picking me up. Uh, they picked me up at the airport, and uh, that was a living hell. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, uh, you know, nobody knows what each other looks like and stuff like that. And uh, Skip, uh, Skip texted me and he said, uh, I'll have a fire shirt on. I don't know what a fire shirt is, you know what I mean? But, my, but uh, you know, my head took off with it, you know. Uh, maybe he's gay and he means orange, you know. I don't, I, you know, I don't know what a fire shirt is. And then I thought, well, maybe, you know. He's got flames on his shirt, like a 52 Ford or something like that, you know. So I didn't know what I was looking at, you know. And then I, I finally seen this guy looking at the baggage claim talking. And, uh, and I'm talking to him, and I'm saying, there's my guy right there, Mr. And I, you know, had him come out. And the reason he called it a fire shirt is he's, he's a fireman. <laughs> and he's got that little emblem on his shirt. It says fireman, you know what I mean? No one else knew that but old Skip, you know, and uh, <laughs> so uh, I made the mistake of once they got me into the car to, uh, you know, ask him how he's doing. That son of a bitch just stopped about 10 minutes ago telling me how he was doing. I mean, don't give the old boy some caffeine, man, you know what I mean? Decaf, Skipper, you know what I mean? But, uh... But I had a great time, and, uh, you know, it's just good to be with you, you know. I'm always safer when I'm with you, you know. And if you're new, I've got a busy head. i got the type of head that loves to chat. i got the type of head that no matter how tired I am, the more it wants to chat, you know. I could be physically beat like I was last night. Sure enough, about 3.30 in the morning, that old head just, hey, Larry, let's chat. Come on, let's talk about when you were a baby and bring you right up to date, for God's sake, you know. And, uh, and the frustrating part about that is we had just done that the night before, you know what I mean? <laughs> but while I was up, uh, if, if, if we have some new folks, is there anybody here under 30 days? There he is back there. Um, while I was up last night milling around in my head, I, 
turned on the TV and I got CNN. And uh, apparently they said that they discovered a cure for alcoholism in Switzerland. And it comes in the form of a pill. So hang in there if you're new. There's, there's hope on the horizon, you know. My first thought is I wondered what two would do. You know, maybe you could crush them up or something like that and get this thing going, you know. But uh, my wife, Rosie, sends you her love. Uh, I, 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 I love my wife to death. I don't like to be away from her. And, uh, but I love being with you, you know. And uh, we had kind of, a, kind of a trying year this year financially and stuff like that. And uh, I remember not too long ago she was worried about money and having enough of it and stuff like that. And, you know, I told her, I, I remember sitting down on the sofa at the end of the meeting and she was concerned and uh, I grabbed her two little hands and I looked her square dead in the eye and I said, Rosie, I says, you know, you don't have anything to worry about. I says, we're both sober and alcoholics anonymous. We both have home groups. We both have sponsors. We both have powers, that higher powers in our lives. We've incorporated these steps and traditions. And I need you to know something, Rosie, that if even if you have to work two jobs, we're going to be all right, you know what I mean? <laughs> I, uh, I come from good people. I, uh, I was born in Detroit. I <laughs> and uh, great mom and dad and, uh, you know, was, uh, came out to California when I was about four years old and, and put in a orphanage for a while in a foster home and stuff, and they finally got together again. And uh, my mom's a little Scandinavian lady. She's a sweet lady to this day. And I remember growing up, my mom loved diet pills. My mom loved that speed. My mom loved eating that speed and running around the house and making Afghans all night long, you know. <laughs> And, uh, you know, everything in the house had fresh Afghans on it. The chairs had Afghans. The couches had Afghans. You'd go in the garage. My dad's golf clubs had little poodle heads on them, you know. And, uh, and no matter what time you got up, she was up just cleaning stuff, you know. And, uh, and uh, her favorite thing when she would eat that speed is she used to make those Afghans. And, but she used to love to um, uh, eat that speed. And when you eat that speed, you have a lot of hobbies, you know. And you like to do them all at once. And her favorite hobby was to eat that speed and make these huge jigsaw puzzles, you know. Not the 2,000 pieces, but the 350,000 pieces, you know, of the Mojave Desert, you know. And, uh, and this would excite her, you know. It's going to be a beige night tonight, honey, you know. And she'd run off to the drugstore and uh, cash in her prescription and uh, get her a carton of Raleigh cigarettes because she saved the coupons on the back of the... Uh, uh, cigarettes, and she'd save those to buy more yarn. It was a hideous cycle she was caught up in, you know. <laughs> and she'd come home and put that stinky peroxide on her hair and, and eat some of that speed and get into that little breakfast nook and put on her one and only moo-moo that she had for 50 years, you know, and put together this puzzle. And, uh, you know, if she got a piece that didn't fit, well, she had a big pair of toenail clippers, and she'd snip that son of a bitch, <laughs> wedge it right in there, you know. Beautiful lady, and uh, and I love my mom a lot, you know. And uh, 
What was to happen to me when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, for which I hope is the last time on May 2nd of 1982, is I'd get together with you folks and my sponsor in this book, Alcoholics Anonymous, if you're new, and you guys would take me to what they call a fact-finding process. We're going to start on a fourth step, and we're going to talk about the facts. We're not going to talk about drunken behavior and 502s in jails and all the locomotives. We're talking about who we are in the middle of the night when we lay our head on our pillow that we don't want folks to find out about. Who is that guy? And I would start out on this fact-finding process right in this fourth step. And I would write down things that I did as a child and drag them into my adult years. And one of the things that I dragged in when I read on this inventory is what I would do with people who would give me love and attention and affection. And what I would do, and it started with my mom, and what I would do is I would play them like a fiddle. And I never want to forget that. I never want to forget what I put that lady through. I never want to forget what it was like to be 16 or 17 years old and be put away for a small period of time. And when I get out, I'm supposed to show up at home. And I don't show up at home. I show up at my mom's place of business. You see, she's cleaning people's houses and she's working at a dry cleaner's and I'm ashamed of her. But I'm not too ashamed to show up that morning and stand in a parking lot of a dry cleaner's and I'm about from here to those back doors. And I've got that rain hitting me, and it's 9 o'clock in the morning, and i got that drunken mud all over me, and I'm hiding behind a car waiting for the last customer to come out so I can run through that rain and make a move on my mom one more time. And as I'm walking through that rain, I go into my mom's place of business, and one more time I was to startle her with my presence, which would be an ongoing thing in that young lady's life. And without batting an eye, she opens up a wallet, and I ask for some money, and she peels out a, a $1 and $2, and a picture of me falls out when I'm eight years old on a Little League team. You know, the only decent picture that lady would ever have of me until I meet you guys. And she gives me that money, and I grab that money, and I run off to Wilmington, California, where I'm going to die. Now, the thing that brings it home to me tonight in Indiana is you take the same man, with my so-called desperation and willing to go to any length. And you stick me in a meeting like this or a home group that we all go to. And I need to ask you something if you're new. How come when my life depends on it, if you were to put the secretary of a meeting that same distance as me and my mom, how come when my life depends on it, I can't walk that same distance and ask a young man or a young lady who's a secretary of a meeting for a job at a meeting that's going to save my life but I can walk that distance and use my mom time and time and time again. And I'm here to share with you, if you're new, that if my alcoholism doesn't kill me, my selfishness and my self-centeredness will, make no mistake about that, which is why it's necessary for a man with over 32 years to have a routine of meetings every week and a job in every one of them. And it's not so I can run off to Indiana and tell you about it. Well, part of it is, but... Uh, <laughs> But it's for one reason and one reason only. And if I don't say anything all night, if you're new, I hope you remember this. I have those jobs and these meetings for one reason and one reason only. And that is because I will never get so sober that I can't get drunk again. But I can get so drunk that I can't make it back. And I never want to forget what that used to be like. You see, that's what we share in our meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
what we used to be like and what happened and what we're like today. And I never want to forget what that used to be like for so many years, going through all those meetings in Southern California and peering through these windows at these meetings and wondering if I'll ever be in the middle of this thing because I knew you had something here. Will I ever be a part of this thing called life? And I never want to forget what that used to be like, to be so sober and to be so crazy and to know that you feel so different that you can't even belong in the thing that's going to save your life. Always feeling different and always approve that you are. No matter where you go and who you're with and what you're doing, you always feel a little bit different. And you don't know what the hell's going on with you. And because of a, a book called Alcoholics Anonymous and some folks in this room, we don't have to feel different anymore. In fact, our binding principle is our identification. Our identification, man. What we are, who we are, and we let folks in on it. And we know that we're not the strangers anymore. And if you're new in Alcoholics Anonymous, man, I hope you step in and come with us on this journey. I hope you do. Now, my dad was a happy drunk. My dad was a happy singing the blues and that King Cole, Bobby Darren drunk. My old man used to love to get drunk and sneak into his own home, you know. Is a, <laughs> he was a window-climbing alky, which I think is a lost art in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> that old boy standing on that gas meter, pounding on that window all night, getting ready to make the big dive, you know, and hopefully it's his own home, you know. He was a hard-working guy. My dad was a, a World War II vet. He was a refinery worker. And uh, I grew up with my dad telling me, you don't know how good you got it. Well, he nailed me right there. I've never been strapped with gratitude. I've got to be beaten half to death today to be reminded of the good life that I have. And my dad was a World War II vet. You don't know how good you got it. Back when I was your age, we really had it tough. And he did. He had a heck of a life, man. Very poor in, in Detroit. And he... You know, his father died at a young age, you know, choked on his tongue, vomiting. His mother hung herself in a Detroit jail. She was a drunken whore when he was 14. And, and his idea was to go in the Navy and marry my mom and bring her out to California and live the good life, you know. And, uh, and I grew up uh, just always trying to please my dad. I wanted my dad's approval so much. I guess because I was doing disapproving things, you know. But, man, I wanted him to like me. And for years, I used to think it was because I loved him. I didn't seek my dad's approval because I loved him. I was afraid of him. I heard what was going on in the middle of the night. I heard what was going on between him and my mom and all the yelling and the screaming and the name-calling and the, and the chairs being dragged across the linoleum floor and stuff like that. I remember that. And I began to not trust these people I was supposed to be loving. And, I, and I'm not blaming them for a darn thing. It's just what I heard. And I started not trusting my mom because she's letting this happen. And I didn't trust my dad because he's doing it. And I got so many questions. I got so many questions, and I feel so ashamed that I'm not loving these folks and I don't trust them that I began to run out away from home at a young age. I couldn't stand be alone in that house because of the way that I felt. And I didn't have anybody to talk it to. But I knew at 11 years old it was up for me to figure this stuff out. I didn't know where else to go with all that. We weren't religion. I weren't going into religion. You know, uh, I was eight years old, and my dad came into my room and told me that I was going to have a baby brother. And I remember for nine months I was saving up these baseball cards, 
you know, oiling up my baseball glove and saving up my baseball cards and thinking of this kid brother and how we're going to go to the beach and play baseball. And nine months later, my dad came in my room when my mom went to the hospital to give birth, and he said that your baby brother died. And I don't remember having any compassion. I don't remember having any understanding for my mom. In fact, what I did is what I would always do when I didn't understand anything. I got mad at it. I ran after the old man with all 80 pounds, yelling and screaming, you promised me. And my dad would be on the top of my inventory when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I ran after him and started swinging at him and telling him that he promised me. You promised me. And then I went into my room and I had this god-awful fear that I would have for the rest of my life. What type of God would create a baby and kill it? Now I can't even go to God when I'm in trouble. An amazing thing about Alcoholics Anonymous, amazing thing about taking this inventory and stepping outside yourself and start making amends to people. See, my dream was to grow up and beat up my dad. That's all I did for 21 years. I didn't want to be a plumber or a carpenter. I just thought about getting at him. And I remember making amends for my dad because I remember you folks telling me, putting aside what they did to you, I was a bad son. And I remember making amends to my dad. And my dad said, Larry, he says, I need to tell you something, son. And I need you to understand this if you can. He says, I've been in a lot of places and I've seen a lot of ugly things. I've been in the, I've been in the Second World War and our ship was shot down and I've seen a lot of my buddies get maimed and, and shot and killed. And I, I've seen a lot of things that kids shouldn't see growing up in Detroit. But he says, there's one thing and, that I need you to know. That amidst all of that stuff, the hardest thing that I had to do in my entire life was to watch you for nine months, save up your baseball cards, and plan for this little kid, and knowing that I one day would have to go in there that day and tell you that he was dead. That was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. I had no idea the old man was there. I had no idea that my dad was that kind of guy and was thinking like that. And I went into a new room with my father because of some amends. Now, I started drinking at 11 years old. There was four of us, and we were playing in a garage, and, and I ran out to a garage, and I took a shot of Four Rose whiskey. And for the first time in my life, I fit. I didn't have to fight to fit in anymore. You see, my whole life, I've never had any ambition. I never had any drive to do anything. I got the type of head that thinks about what I want to do when I grow up, which followed me till I was 30 years old, for God's sake, you know. And I remember growing up thinking I want to be a television cameraman or I want to be a, a, a you know, a bus driver or whatever. But whatever it was, my head would talk me out of it within 15 seconds. No, 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 you, you, you'll never cut that. You'll never do that. You'll never make it. I grew up believing that. I grew up believing that you're never going to change, Larry. You're always going to be that kid on the street drinking wine. You're never going to change. But 11 years old, there was four of us. And I took a shot of Four Rose whiskey, man, and I fit. It shut off that head. It made me being all right, all right. I was okay with being me. I wasn't afraid to be by myself anymore. And I became, I, when I drank, I got all the ambition that I needed, man. You know, and, and I, I remember that first drunk, and I never laughed so hard my entire life. You know, all day long, man. I never threw up so much as I did that day, you know. I threw up stuff I ate when I was 10 years old, for God's sakes, man. 
And I remember kissing my first Latin woman that night. It was my aunt. I uh, made a move after her, you know. That made my uncle a little edgy, you know. And, uh, and I didn't head out to Skid Row and lose my paper out and come to AA like some of us, you know. I X'd that spot. I knew I'd be seeing that spot again. I knew I'd found the thing that was going to make it even. It evened up the playing field. And, the, and little did I know is that all of those feelings that I would have when I drank, the shutting off the head and the quieting of the gut and all that secret, I had no idea that that wasn't really happening. But to the alcoholic, it's the realest as rain. It's as real as rain. It was the most realest thing that I had in my life. I had no idea that everybody that drinks doesn't get that. But the people in this room, we take two shots of alcohol, we're whatever it needs. Because it ain't a problem to us. It's a problem to the onlookers. But to me and you, it's always an answer. No matter if, and if you don't have a problem, it's going to be an answer, man. And that's the nature of my malady, is that this thing does not stop being an answer. I hear people all the time coming to these podiums, and while they're talking, they'll finally get to that phrase, at the end of my drinking. If you be alcoholic, there is no end to your drinking. There is no end. We are all here tonight because we have a reprieve. And because of this book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and that certain something that takes place as a result of these steps, I've had a couple reprieves that I've been able to have back to back and stretch them out for about 32 years. Because all it takes for me to do is to step away from the thing that makes me feel so good. That's all it takes. That's all it takes is for me to stop doing those things that I do on a routine basis that I get annoyed at doing. And, uh, and I had that first drink, and, uh, and I didn't head out to Skid Row that next day, but I marked that spot. And the older I got, the more I leaned on it. And by the time I got into high school, kids were going in freshman year, kids were going to their lockers to get their books and stuff, and I was going to my lockers to take a shot of some Thunderbird wine and take some barbiturates to take away the, the shakes. We were driving on the way over here, and I seen this big factory that said, Lily. God, my, my mouth watered. <laughs> I got into high school. I started hanging around these Mexicans. And over in California, we don't have big trucks and four-wheel drive opera. We used to lower our cars. We used to lower our cars right down to the damn ground, man. My car was so low that you could slide this book right under it, man. I had a big old, hair was all big like a Bakersfield tumbleweed. Had my white t-shirt and black khaki pants, and we'd drink that Thunderbird wine and bounce around and listen to the Four Tops and the Temptations and the OJs and Marvin Gaye, and God, I loved it, man. I was in my plumbing truck last week, and the Four Tops came on. I just start sinking in my damn truck, man. I, oh, yeah, I loved it. I loved it. I had a Mexican girlfriend, and she curled her hair up in, in, with these soup cans, and the noodles were stuck in there, you know. My white t-shirt, my black khaki pants, her girlfriends were telling me that men who are well endowed had big feet. I had a pair of 15-inch shoes I was driving around in, had my hair on and shit. Oh, man, I loved it. Pepsi Mike, he tripped over my foot tonight, and I felt proud. You know what I mean? Let me move that thing. may take a while, Mike, you know. 
I loved it, man. And we'd drink that wine and bounce around all day and get our frowns on because our asses hurt from bouncing around. And God, I loved it, man. Do they have jack-in-the-box restaurants out here? Oh, no? Well, they got them over there in California, man. And that's where you got to talk to a puppet to get a hamburger, you know? Well, we've been drinking that 151 rum all day. And there ain't nothing like that stuff, man. I'm drinking 151, 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Loopy says, let's go to the jack-in-the-box and talk to the puppet. We were a lonely couple, you know, and uh, so I roll up to the jack-in-the-box and, you know, man, there's about 10 of them now because I can't see nothing. I roll into the jack-in-the-box and that kid starts yelling at me, can I have your order, please? And I roll in there and I run over the damn puppet. His head's, his head's hanging down. He's still yelling at me, you know, can I have your order, please? And I want to talk to him, you know. I want him to be my designated driver, I think. I don't know, you know. But the cops come and they arrest me and they throw me on the hood of the car. They shatter my hair all over the place, you know, and I don't drive till I'm 30. Big deal. There's nothing like riding shotgun. Let, let Rudy drive all night, man. There's nothing like riding shotgun and drinking that wine, looking at yourself in that mirror and realizing what a damn good-looking man you are, man, you know. You want to get an Alfie's attention, put a mirror in front of him, man. He's just, oh, man, you know. And the more you drink, the bluer your eyes get. Man, I looked at myself in that mirror. My hair's all flat and tall because I've been sleeping on the window all night. I've got 30 pounds of tamale puke on my chest. And I feel like dancing, you know. I do. I feel like I love to dance, man. I do. I love the salsa, the merengue, anything. I love dancing, man. And we rolled up to this. And, and these bars that I used to go to used to hear the music two blocks before you got there. The bounty room, the llama room, all the, the oh, the, it was great, man. And one night we rolled up and we rolled by, and you can hear the music, you're getting ready, because here I come. And we roll by that thing, and, and I see my salsa queen. She's all the way in the back, man. Her hair's real big, and, you know, she's got flies stuck in her hair, you know, and I got flies stuck in my hair, you know, and she's got 30 pounds of tamale puke on her chest, and... She's back there throwing back shots, and she's, you know, eating a pickled pig feet, you know. And I like that about a woman. I don't know about you, you know. And, uh, and I got to go talk to her, man. So we park our ride, and I go in there, and, and I'm going back to the bar, and my feet are so big, I feel like I'm skiing, man. I'm trying to, you know. I, I, finally, I slide up, finally, I slide up to her, and, I, you know, we have a shot of tequila, and all of a sudden, her lesbian girlfriend comes over and nails me, man. Just knocks the crap right out of me. I'm down on the ground, and I go to get up and run, and my feet are so big, they're, they're caught between the rail and the bar, and I can't get out of there, man. I, I keep coming up, and this old bag is just, boom, nailing me, man. I felt like one of those puppets, man. Just, that gal beat the hell out of me for about an hour. And one more time on that inventory, I realized that that night I was a victim of gay bashing because she kicked my rear end all night long, man, you know. And the only thought that I had is when she's done, I'm going to kick her ass, you know what I mean? I loved it. I ran into a guy like that not too long ago, up there at the mall over there by my house. This kid comes walking by me, and he's a tough kid. You've seen him. They got earrings on. That just rings of being tough. And he is so tough that his earlobes are pierced. No, 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 they're not pierced. They're drilled out. 
Yeah, he's got these holes in that you could put a damn clock in there, you know, or AA triangle or some rims or something, you know, which is every sponsor's dream because you start sponsoring this cat and he gives you any lip and he starts walking away. Well, you could just hook him like that, you know, <laughs> grab that other ear and just bring him back into it, you know. Well, he walks by me with all this crap. He's got, looks like he's been shot with buckshot, you know. He's got a ball bearing in his forehead, one in his ear, one in his eye, one in his nose, one in his tongue, got a chain around his neck, and it's hooked to his wallet, and he walks by me, and he stares at me, and he goes, well, what the hell are you looking at? <laughs> I said, man, I don't have a clue. Right? I, you know, I, I wanted to squirt him with some WD-40 to make sure he's moving on, you know what I mean? Well, we started talking and laughing, and now I sponsor him, you know, and <laughs> lived down in San Diego, man. When he was new, Ron, he used to call me up, man, sponsor, sponsor, what do you want me to do? And I said, well, Ronnie, I said, uh, man, why don't you unlock yourself, for God's sake, man? He said, well, I go to these meetings, and I feel so different, really. I said, maybe you're the only one wrapped up in a chain-link fence, Ronnie, how about that, you know? I loved it, man. I loved it. And I bounced around with these guys for a long time. And, man, you know, when, when we're in the midst of it, there ain't nothing like that life. There's nothing like it. And I was rolling with these guys, and we were doing those things. And I, I sadly introduced my mom and dad to a level of living they didn't know existed. And then I determined to rub their nose in it. And around 1969, folks were doing things like going to Vietnam and and stuff like that. And I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. So around 1969, I grabbed my buddy over there in California, and I said, well, let's drive out to, to Detroit and find my roots. And we wound up in Phoenix. <laughs> <laughs> Off of North Central and Roosevelt at the Apache Hotel. It's about five floors high. Everybody has a TV. It's in the lobby. Behind a lock screen, <laughs> you know. Everybody has a bathroom that's down the hall. I'm in a little room that's about, you know, enough for a cot and a, and a little window that you look out every day for hours and just drink and dream and die. And you know, one of these days, it ain't going to be like this. One of these days, I'm going to have something. I'm going to be something. One of these days. And I started seeing guys drive by me in trucks. And they would have dogs, and they would have tool belts, and they would have badges on. And I would begin this obsession, if you will, of that maybe that's what my problem is. Maybe I'm at the stage of my life now where maybe it's time for me to grow up. Maybe I need some good old normal living. And maybe the more normal my life is, the less wild my drinking would be. Maybe that would be the balancing act here, you know. And I began to have this obsession, if you will, of trying to get my life together so that my drinking wouldn't take off. Maybe that would help me control it, because now I would have a form of responsibility. And I went on that for years. And to the untrained eye, it looks like that's what happens here in AA. To the untrained eye, that's exactly what looks like it happens in some places in Alcoholics Anonymous. People stop drinking. They get a car. They get a room. They get a job. And to the untrained eye, it looks like the solution to this malady is normal living. And nothing could be further from the truth. We've got people sitting in this room and thousands just like it who've got every material instinct satisfied, yet they're sitting in rooms restless and irritable and discontented. They're sitting in the answer, looking for the answer. 
and they don't know what's going on because they got everything satisfied. And me and you know exactly what's going on. They fail to enlarge their spiritual way of life. There's not a car in the world that's going to make it all right. There's not a woman in the world. There's not a dog in the world. There's not a saw in the world that's going to take away that hole. And I had no idea that the treatment for this malady will be me, you, and this book, and the perpetuation of this gift. That's my primary purpose. That's my singleness of purpose. It's not to become a plumber and a husband and a dog catcher and all this. My primary purpose is to become useful to the alcoholic who still suffers and carry this message. That's my job. My sponsor told me when I was five years sober, he said, son, seek ye first the kingdom. I said, sponsor, I don't know what that means. I, I didn't go to church. I don't read any. I don't know what you mean. He says, son, listen to me. He says, put all your efforts into staying sober, Larry, and the rest of your life will take care of itself. But the more you start peckering around your life and the least you do in AA, the most miserable you're going to be. Give all your time to AA, and you'll find plenty of time for this other stuff. Make this your primary purpose. Seek ye first the kingdom, he says. Isn't that amazing? I'm the type of guy who doesn't seek ye first the kingdom till I'm in trouble. Why do we wait? Thank God for the structure of my life where I wake up and I seek him the first thing in the morning. I let him have me. I do my third step and my seventh step and I do some readings out of our literature and I sign up for the day. Why wait till you're in so much trouble to find out where your father is? So I started seeking, and I didn't know what was going on with me. And, uh, and I would get, get these jobs, you know, and I, I remember going to the Wagon Wheel Bar, my favorite bar, dirty little bar, no windows, just a stinking curtain blowing out there. I meet this guy named Ernie. Ernie says, I know what we're going to do, Larry. He says, come back in the morning. He says, I got a guy that's a plumber. He'll put you to work. I show up that morning. This plumber takes me out to the desert, sticks me underneath a house, gives me a transistor radio. He says, I'll be back in nine hours. All I want you to do is hang this copper. Just hang this copper all day. And he gave me a transistor radio, and he took off. And I'm underneath this house. I got a transistor radio. I got a pint of PM bourbon. I start crawling around underneath this house. I see the stray cat over there, and I said, my God, I'm on top of the world. I got it made under here, man. I got this transistor. I got a pint. I got a pet. You know, I've never had all these three things going at once. You know what I mean? I start drinking that hot bourbon. Nine hours later, they're dragging me out from underneath that house. I got drunk, and I busted up through her floor. I robbed her of all of her jewelry and her money. And the cat comes running out with a bunch of necklaces on, you know, and they put me in jail for four days. Get out of there. I go back to the wagon wheel bar. Ernie says, I know what we're going to do. I know. He says, not too far from here is a horse track. He says, we're going to get you down to 95 pounds. You're going to be a jockey. And I thought, okay, we'll start working out, you know. And he had a bag of speed. I don't do speed. I've just been drinking wine and doing heroin and minding my own business, you know. And I, I'm not going to be no Afghan maker, that's for damn sure, you know. He says, no, no, it ain't like that. He says, just take this stuff for about two months and I'll come and weigh you in and we'll go get our colors. And he took off. And he leaves me in my little room. Well, that cat comes back two weeks later. I haven't moved an inch, right? He comes back and I've just... You know, he, he took off, and I was just running around that room, chasing a fly in my room, and looking out my window every 10 seconds going, what's that, what's that, what's that, what's that, you know, and 
curled up in a corner because these black and white flashes were blinding me and it was the sun going up and down, you know. He comes back, he opens up that door two weeks later, I'm standing there, you know. He says, you couldn't have possibly taken all that. Well, I dirt here, Ernie, you put a saddle on me and ride my ass around here, you know. My hair was all straight up. I had white stuff coming out my eyes and, you know, anything that was white and on the floor, I was trying to fire it up, you know. Could have been a toenail. It was going up, you know. Worst 28 days of my life. Finally, a couple days later, I go down to the bar again and I meet this other plumber and I start working for this plumber for about, I don't know, two and a half hours. And I find out that he was younger than me and I ain't working for a kid. I've got my pride. So I did what any honorable man would do. I, I faked a knee injury. And it, I, yeah, I went down to the county hospital and the doctor, you know, looked at my little funny knee and my explanation and then this guy wrote me a prescription for Percodan. And then he left me a box of blank prescription pads that he wanted me to have. <laughs> and I took off down North Central, you know, and I ran into the wagon wheel. Ernie looks at these prescription pads, and he makes a call to Tempe, Arizona, and we start writing prescriptions and start writing prescriptions for Secondol, Nimbutol, Tuanol, you name it all. We wrote it all, man. It, <laughs> you know, damn near took it all too, you know. And, after about nine months, man, there was no freeway chase. I'm loaded up on bourbon and barbiturates, you know, and, and when you're loaded on whiskey and reds, there's no freeway chase like they have on TV. It, there he goes down to 17, you know, none of that was happening. I was going nine miles an hour. The cop was on foot. He was just walking by going, you know, and I'm in my car looking at this cat and I'm going, my God, can this man run, you know. He rolled me out of there, threw me in jail for close to a year. I get out of jail, I come back, they sent me on the Continental Trailways back to Los Angeles for another fresh start, and my probation officer puts me on an abuse. And for the first time in my life since I'm 13, I don't have a thing in my system. I don't have anything in my system. I'm in this little hotel called the Greyhound Hotel in downtown Torrance. Beautiful place, everybody has a TV, it's in the lobby, you know. And I'm sitting in, this little, uh, sitting in this little room, drinking and dreaming. I can't drink. I'm on this interview stuff. For the first time in my life, I don't have anything in my system. It's about two months. And my probation officer uh, sends me a voucher that he's got a job interview for me to go to as a part-time janitor at a refinery. And I'm not driving until I'm 32. So I'm taking a bus. And you're always two hours early or two hours late. And I show up to this interview, and I'm two hours early. And I don't know what to do with myself, so I wander over to a Little League field, and I start wandering around there. And I go into the Little League dugout, and I start getting hot and sweaty, begin to kind of cry a little, and then I start laughing a little, and crying a little, and become hysterical. This paranoia comes over me, and my hallucinations come back, and they stick. And I know that the cord's been unplugged. And I don't know what's going on, and I become somewhat catatonic. One of the neighbors sees me pacing around and he calls the paramedics. They come over and get me and they take me to the Harbor General Hospital in downtown Los Angeles. And I'm on a little gurney with an arm and a leg strapped in. And they look at my jacket and they seem to think by some of the things that are going on in my life that maybe I need to go to a state hospital and be observed for 30 or 60 days. And they put me up in this little white van 
with my hands and my feet chained, and they drove me for three, three hours to the state hospital out by Oxnard, <clears throat> where they're going to observe me for 30 or 60 days. And a year later, they let me out, totally observed. <laughs> well, we couldn't find a thing in there, you know, and, uh, and they gave me my certain medications to take, and they seemed to work for certain things. However, there's one thing that you can't medicate away in the head of an alcoholic, and that is every time we're sober, we have that idea that this time it's going to be different. I'm going to beat this thing if it's the last thing that I do. You see, I'm an alcoholic. The memory of my last drunk doesn't have sufficient force to keep me sober. And that's the baffling thing about our malady, is that no matter how nasty that last drunk is, that no matter how long we've been rolling around with the pigs, that no matter what disgusting things we've been doing for years, no matter what the physical condition of our life is, no matter what the threats of institutions are, no matter how much our loved ones are begging with us, the only thing that the alcoholic ever feels when he's sober is that maybe this time it's going to be different. The memory of my last drunk never has sufficient force to keep me sober. In fact, no matter how painful that memory is when you're new, the pain of your last drunk will be pushed away by what? The pain that you feel when you're sober. And the only thing that not drinking has ever squeezed out of me is this idea that, baby, this time it's going to be different. And it doesn't come to me in those words. I don't know those words till I meet you. It comes to me in the familiar language that I know. Screw it. What's the use anyway? What is the use? We've been, this ain't the first time we've made this dance of not drinking. That's why we lose hope in it. We are all victims of this nonsense that they drilled in our heads our entire life. We've heard it for years. And I tried to believe this nonsense. And I tried to convince myself. And I tried so hard to believe this nonsense. And you guys know what it is too. And that's this stuff here. That if you stop drinking, everything will be all right. And me and you stop drinking, and we're not all right. And the longer we stay sober, the worse we feel. Oh, they're tickled as crap that we're not drinking. But the longer we stay sober, the worse we feel. And we wander into these Alano clubs and hear guys with these ties on saying stuff like, 30 days ago, I was on the streets of Los Angeles. Now I'm the president of the Bank of America. Thank you. You know, and I was, wow, I came in with that guy. And that's the baffling thing about my malady, is no matter how much I want to get sober and stay sober, I lack the power. It's not because I'm a bad guy. It's not because I, I, I'm a lowrider. It's because I lack the power not to. That no matter how much I would love to do it, no matter how much my mom pleads with me and the broken hearts and stuff, that's why we're so good at saying we're sorry. We're sorry. Oh, God, we're sorry because we all know, man, we really are sorry. We really mean that. And it's not because we're not loved. It's because we're loved that drives us mad. It's because I love you so much that I know I'm going to do it again, and I don't know what to tell you about that. I don't know how to tell you about that because I don't have the power not to. And I didn't know what was going on with me. All I can tell you is that after two months of being out of that hospital, I run out of Thorazine. And in 1975, um, <clears throat> 1974, I'm over in a, Olvero Street in downtown Los Angeles on Skid Row. 
I'm at a Chevron gas station. I'm curled up like a dead dog. I'm 120 pounds and I'm yellow. And they, they find that they, they roll me up on a violation of probation, a public nuisance. And they send me up to the county, county ranch, and I'm up there for about 30 days, 40 days. In 1975, uh, they took about 50 of us into a black and white bus and sent me down to the South Bay Courthouse where I'm going to be tried and sentenced to two and a half years in the state penitentiary. I'm in a holding tank about half this size. And at 4 o'clock afternoon, everybody's gone. All the guys on the bus are gone. All the buses are gone. I'm the only one. I'm on a concrete floor with a Vons bag and no hope. Wondering where they're going to send me now. Four o'clock in the afternoon, I hear some keys. And all of a sudden, that green door slides open. And a Scottish man with a patch says, Hi, lad. My name is Alex, son. Are you Larry Thomas? And I said, Yes, sir, I am. Come with me, son. We're going to Alcoholics Anonymous. He says, We're going to AA. And I said to myself, My God, what's AA? I mean, I've heard of OR and PO, you know, but what's AA, you know? And who's the Scottish pirate all of a sudden, you know? Is he real, you know? Yeah, he was very real. Because looking back over 40 years, I know exactly what he was. Because this room is sprinkled with him tonight. It's what my book calls a trusted servant. What would make that man a trusted servant? Simply this. He had no business being there. He wasn't a counselor. He wasn't a probation officer. He wasn't a refined, yeah, he wasn't a, a, a you know, a, a, a probation officer, a counselor. He, you know, he was a refinery worker who just got the worst news of his life. And that news was that his little wife was dying immediately of a terminal disease. He knew she was in good hands, but he knew he wasn't. But somewhere in his home group, somewhere in his home group in Evansville, somewhere in his book study, in Indianapolis, somewhere in his workshop in Muncie, somewhere in his home group, that man was to sit with you and grasp and develop a manner of living that installed in him this. Practical experience tells us that nothing will ensure immunity from drinking except intensive work with other alcoholics. This works. When other activity, this thought came through his head. He turned his little car around, and he drove to the South Bay Courthouse, and he talked to Judge Foy and Judge Hollingsworth, and they said, I think we got a guy for you. And that man took me to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm ready to go for a long ride up north and maybe some lunch or something, right? Fifteen-minute car ride. That man turned, and on the, on the way to that meeting, the man tells me the news. He said, son, I know you've had a tough life. I know you've had a tough life, and you feel different. God, did he read my mail there? Always feeling different. He says, I can't, I can't wait. I can't wait for you to meet these people. I can't wait for you to meet these people. I couldn't wait to meet you tonight. I couldn't wait to see Martin and the guys from Evansville and finally find out what Irene really looks like. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't, I had no idea what Skip would put me through, but, you know, and, <laughs> I couldn't wait to meet you guys. He says, I can't wait for you to meet these people, son. And he says, you need to know this. Don't you worry about feeling different. He says, the more different you feel, the more qualified you are. Nobody comes here happy and well-adjusted in Alcoholics Anonymous. 
And the man drove me to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he drove up and he drove on to this stinky, smelly, rotten, filthy, perverted Torrance Lamita Alano Club. And I, what the heck is an Alano? What is an Alano? Is it like an elk or a moose? You know, watch for crossing Alanos or something like that. And he, he rolled up to the parking lot and there's all the Alanos walking around, man. Everybody had a nickname. They had Indian Genie and Captain Bob and Tennessee Bill and Singing Sam and Serenity Sam and Bicycle Ray and Santa Claus Ray, Dancing Pete and Whistling Butt, all these other people, man. And I'm thinking, my God, I just left a group of people like this, man, you know. And Little Moose comes running across the parking lot. Hi, honey, my name is Moose, and I'm expecting a miracle. I said, I bet you are, Moose, but I'm not it, man, you know. <laughs> And then this transvestite, he came out of this card room, and this transvestite started circling me like a helicopter in Los Angeles, man. And after three times around, he lands, and he comes walking over to me in his moo-moo. And he says, hi, I can't wait to take you to our candlelight meeting. I said, I don't think so, pal, you know. Not till I get a year anyway, you know. <laughs> I told Alex, I said, my God, that guy's got big feet, man, you know. <laughs> he had some whoppers, man. And I said, if that's the effect of this blue book, I don't know no part of it. And from 1975 to 1982, I came in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous on a regular basis. And that was the biggest lie that I was telling myself, was that I was coming in and out of AA. I hadn't touched it. I hadn't touched it. I've been doing that my entire life. I've been sitting in rooms since the age of 13 till I was 30, from the state, the government, the county. All my life I've been sitting in rooms, sitting in seats, waiting for you to do something for me. I've had my hand out my entire life. I'm a something-for-nothing guy. I've sat in rooms for five hours waiting for a block of cheese, for God's sakes. What's going to make it any different when I come here? I sat in here waiting for you to do something for me. Isn't that amazing? If you're new in Alcoholics Anonymous, there is nothing to get here. You don't get things in Alcoholics Anonymous. There's nothing to get here. Look around you, for God's sake. You know? <laughs> There's nothing to get here. If you, the only thing you're going to get if you're new is be prepared to be divinely inconvenient for the rest of your damn life, man, because this is the longest thing I've ever done against my will my entire life, man which is why it works so good. We do the uncomfortable to get comfortable. We do the uncomfortable to get comfortable. And I would sit in these rooms and get physically sober and mentally ill and pursue my money, property, and prestige. Our darn traditions tell us that that's a problem, that it diverts us from our primary purpose. Well, if it would do that to a group, what do you think it's going to do to an individual? He didn't get you sober so you can go be a, 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 an executive. That's not your purpose. The most beautiful picture in the world that our fellowship has is that man on the bed and those two guys talking to him. Now, what in God's name do you think they're talking about? You know, uh, Andy, you better work some more overtime, you know. <laughs> I don't think that's what's going on in that picture. I tell you what's happened to me. When Dr. Bob and Bill got together at the Cyberling guest house. Bob says, Ann, I don't want to talk to this man. But because he's a friend of yours, I'll give him 15 minutes. 
And as we all know, those guys went to the Cyberlink guest house and they came out about four or five hours later. And Bob said this, for the first time in my life, and somebody understands my drinking. And they had a moment. They had a moment. And by golly, that's why we're here tonight. It's not to dance. It's not to win the raffle. Maybe, just maybe, we're going to create an atmosphere for somebody to have a moment. Maybe, just maybe, that's why we gather up in our home group and we have all the commitments and the coffee's made and the chairs are out and the literature's put out so that somebody who's new doesn't have to do a thing but sit there and identify and listen to the sweet voice of a loving God that's expressed himself in our meetings and maybe, just maybe, identify and say to himself, by golly, I can do it here and have a moment. Recreating that atmosphere that was created for me and you. I hope that happens to somebody. I hope that happens. Now, I'm sliding in around in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm telling them that thing that all the slippers like me say to people. A don't work. A don't work for me. Don't forget about it. Don't go there. A don't work for me. A don't work for me. Don't go there. It's a lousy place. A don't work for me. And after 32 years, if you're new, I've come all the way from California to tell you this. AA don't work for me either. Doesn't work for Ted. Doesn't work for Irene. Doesn't work for Nancy. Doesn't work for Martin. We work for it. And you need to grab your head around that. There's work to be done here. And he's counting on us to do it. We are responsible. There's stuff for folks like me to do. Now, isn't it amazing? How do you take a guy who knows nothing about God, who knows nothing about religion, who doesn't trust anybody, how am I, who's lacking a power, how am I supposed to find a power greater than myself? Isn't it amazing what happens to me and folks like me that the more I serve you, the clearer he becomes. And the more I serve me, the darker I become. There is a miracle here. And if you don't know what God's will is, and you're on that magical hunt, and it's just frustrating you. This is a book of hints. <laughs> All through here, he tells you what his will is, and what you're to do with it, and what it looks like, and what will happen if you don't do it. It's riddled with his will. And I had no idea. And all those years, 80, 75 to 82, flying around here dying. Can't stop from drinking, trying to kill myself. Don't know what I'm winding up on the streets. And every time I called Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd get central office and somebody would come and get me. And they were always clean and they were sharp, just like you guys are tonight. And it was always this Montana cowboy. And on May 2nd, 19, that's why I'm wearing a tie tonight. Not because I think I'm sharp and effective, but because you folks taught me to live a certain way where I began to show respect for the thing that's saving my life. That's what was missing in my life. I spent my entire life demanding respect. I spent my entire life seeking recognition. I spent my entire life people-pleasing. And when I started respecting the people that were saving my life in the meetings that I was sitting in, I began to feel okay being here. When I began to show respect for Alcoholics Anonymous, when I began to show up on time, when I began to respect the people in it and my commitments there, I began to respect the lady called my wife when I would get married. 
I started respecting my sponsor and I began to respect my father and, and a boss. Everything I was to know about being a man, I would learn from the men and women of alcohol. I didn't bring no goodies. I brought lack of power and an unmanageable life. And you folks taught me what to do with that power. That it was to be useful to others. And that these meetings in Alcoholics Anonymous keep my ego small enough to be useful to you. And when my ego gets bigger than my meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm in a troubled man. When I stop to start to feel like I don't belong here or it ain't the right place anymore. But on May 2nd, 1982, I'm at the Beacon Light Mission in downtown Los Angeles, and I'm stumbling around like I always do with no hope and loneliness, that God-awful loneliness. And I look at myself in a reflection in the mirror, and I say, my God, what am I, you know, whatever happened to my dreams? And I look at myself, and I hadn't looked at myself in a reflection for years. I hadn't looked in any mirrors, and I hadn't looked at any windows. And I saw eyes with the thing, and I thought, my God, whatever happened to that kid that could run like a deer? Whatever happened to that kid that had a, had a shot at being a model? Whatever happened to that kid that, that had a shot at being a junior? You know, whatever happened to that guy that had a chance? At, where is that guy? And I did what I always did when I got that way. I panhandled some money. I called Alcoholics Anonymous. And this guy that had been 12-stepping me for all these years gets the phone. Oh, Don, Monty. I said, Don, this is Larry. Look, at, I'm ready to come to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm down here at the mission. Will you come and get me? And Don told me the most profound thing I've ever heard in my life. He said, no. He says, you know where we are. You know what we got. Why don't you get your rusty rear down here yourself? I'm tired of chasing after you. And he hung up. And I said, my God, whatever happened to that AA love? You know, I, I just heard it. I just heard it. It was no longer necessary for the good people of Alcoholics Anonymous to be inconvenienced by me. Now it was my turn to come to you. And I went around that corner and I checked out of that mission and I got everything that I owned in my little bag. And I went on that little corner and I started crying. I started crying because I knew I was going to drink again and this time I didn't want to. I knew that nothing would never change. That my life would always be like this. That for 30 years this is all I could do and I could never get past doing what I'm doing. And the only thing that I'd never done is go to this thing called AA and let them have me. And I was so afraid that I was going to drink, and I knew I would, because I'd been laying around those pigs before. I was like a tail on a kite, man. It was just a matter of the wind hitting me. And I was so afraid that I took that long walk to that Alana club, that 10-mile walk with my poopy pants and no hope, waddled up to that club, and every liquor store I would see, I wanted to go in there and bust the window and grab that half pint. But I didn't let my head, because the only thing I thought about was seeing that bald-headed carpenter, because I had to ask him something. I had to ask him something I never asked in 10 years. And I went into that Alano club, and I asked him where Don was, and they said he's by the coffee bar. And I waddled up to Don, and I said, Don, I said, I don't know what to do with my life. Would you be my sponsor? And the guy's eyes lit up like these chandeliers for about five seconds. And then he lit into me for about 20 minutes, man. <laughs> and he told me through all of that simply this. If you make the effort, I'll make the effort. If you don't want to make the effort, don't bother me, son. I've got guys that want to do this thing. I'm not dragging around any dead weight. That's a rude thing to say to a 
wide-eyed newcomer, you know. And I fell in love with that man. I fell in love with my sponsor because I began to trust the man. And when I began to trust this man, when I began to get so secure with him that I could tell him how insecure I was. You see, I didn't make a friend of him. I didn't try to people-please him. Because when I'm people-pleasing, I hold back serious things just to look good. And the man became my sponsor. And I loved him, and I still love him. He passed away several years ago. Several years ago. And we started on this journey. And we started making amends to people. Making amends to a little mother that I'd broken into one night. And my mom's sitting there watching Johnny Carson, and I broke into her little room and startled her half to death. I got my drunken mud on. She lays my little head down on her lap, and she starts talking to me about this Michigan God. She starts crying, and I got my head on her lap, and I could feel these tears hitting me. And I tell my mom, don't worry about it, Mom. It's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. I'm just having a rough time. And she went off to bed. And while she was in her bedroom, I remembered that my dad used to have some scotch and whiskey underneath the garbage disposal. Like the days of wine and roses, I start opening up her cupboards and going through everything, and I can't find nothing, but I know what's in there. And I get so tired that I pass out, and I wake up the next morning to see that I had already found the bottle, that the empty was in the trash. You see, during the night, my mom came out, and she asked me what I was doing. She heard me going through the windows and through, and through the cupboards, and she says, Honey, what's wrong? And I said, Don't you, honey, what's wrong with me? And I started beating my mom till I got blood out of her nose, demanding that she come up with a bottle that she had no idea of what I was talking about. And I started making amends for this lady. And it took more than an afternoon and a lunch and a note. I sat there, and because of the people of Alcoholics Anonymous, they said, you're not going to see your mom to be a service. You're not going to your mom to seek forgiveness. You're going to your mom because you are her son. You're going to your mom not so that you can get peace of mind, so that you can sleep. You're going to your mom so she can have peace of mind and so that she can sleep and so that she can see you over a period of time that when she hears a siren, she don't have to worry about you. You see, there's, I've never been to an Al-Anon meeting in my life. But there was one lady that told me something. I never want to forget this. She says, Larry, she says, you have to remember something about mothers. No matter how much you try to convince them, and no matter how much you try to prove to them, if there's anything wrong in your life, they blame themselves. If you're going to make amends to your mom, tell her it's not her fault. Tell her to quit blaming herself for whatever went down in your life. I'm happy to tell you that my mom turned 85 last week. And I'm happily married man for 18 years, but every week I cheat on my wife. I go date my mom. She sits. She has a. She has a little bit of dementia now, so every now and then I got to reintroduce myself, you know. But for that day, I'm right there. She can repeat herself all she wants, because I'm in the finest window a man can be to walk the lady out that walked me in. Whatever she wants, I'm there, right there. And she lives in this place about six floors high with all these other little older ladies. And all these other ladies got real flowers on their balcony. And she's got plastic flowers. And that bothered me one day. So I went over to my mom and I said, you know, Mom, 
I says, everybody's got real flowers, but you've got plastic ones. I says, I'm going to get you some real roses. She says, I don't want any real roses. I says, Mom, you don't understand. I'm going to buy them. And I'm going to put them on your little balcony, and I'm going to water them, and you're going to have real roses, just like the other lady. She says, honey, I don't want any real roses. I says, Mom, you don't understand. She says, no, no, you don't understand. She says, I don't want any real roses. She says, I love to my plastic flowers. She says, because I love to sit in my rocker and watch the hummingbirds suffer. <laughs> You got it, Mom. She had a uh, she had a hospital thing a couple years ago, and she had to go in there and get some stuff moved out of her stomach and stuff like that. And she was very worried. And I told my sponsor, and I said, Johnny, I says these, you know, she's got this stuff going on, and you know, and I don't know what to say to her. She said, For God's sake, jackass, go over there and reassure her. She's scared to death. So I went over there and I talked to my mom and I said, you know, mom, this is going to be an easy operation. You don't have nothing to worry about. It's going to be like getting your tonsils out. You'll be done before you know it, eating ice cream. She goes, really? And I go, yeah, mom. I said, I'll come by tomorrow and see how you're doing. And I take off. Well, the operation went south. And they found some stuff in there and they had to dig and stuff like that. And on my way over to visit my mom, uh, I remembered my wife uh, telling me that, you know, uh, women like to be massaged. They like lotions. So I thought, okay, I'll get my mom some hand lotion. So uh, I go over to the gift shop at the hospital, and I pick up this big tub of lavender body cream, you know. And I got this tub of stuff and my little flowers, and I'm going up to see my mom. And the nurse says, are you Betty's son? And I go, yeah. Oh, she wants to talk to you. I go into my room with all my goodies, and my mom's laying flat, and she's got all these hoses on. She's laying flat on her back, and she sees me over at the door, and she goes like this. <laughs> and I go waddling over there, and I kneel down to her little mouth, and she goes, tonsils my ass. <laughs> well, while I'm standing there, I see my mom's little feet hanging out the, the bed there, and they're all chapped and stuff. And I, I turned to my mom and I says, Mom, I says, do you want some lotion on your feet? She goes, oh, honey, I would love that. And her little feet just started moving around like that. And I got a big wad of that lotion and I, I started massaging my mom's feet. And she's going, oh, oh, oh it scared the crap out of me, dude, you know. <laughs> and it dawned on me that when I was a little dirty grubby little nine, ten-year-old kid. She used to rub that corn husker's lotion on me when they would find me from running away and stuff. And uh, then a, another thing that dawned on me was it was the first time I'd ever touched my mom. I'd never touched her before. And that, <clears throat> I couldn't believe it. Now I can't keep from touching her. I don't ever want to stop touching her. There was a little girl in my life. I got married when I was five years sober, and it didn't last very long, but a year and a half. And I had to leave a, had to leave a little baby because of a divorce. And I thought I was a no-good husband. And the women in Alcoholics Anonymous told me, you may not be a husband anymore, but you'll always be somebody's father. Don't you ever let that little girl wonder where you're at? 
And because she lives in Phoenix and you live in Los Angeles, you make sure that you write her all the time. Make sure that you write her not on that yellow legal paper, but write her on Pocahontas paper, for God's sake, you know. And if you can fly to Indiana and talk to the masses, you can drive over to Phoenix 300 miles and see your daughter, what's more spiritual. But never let her wonder where you're at. Always let her know where you're at. And I would write her postcards and stuff like that. And I would write her letters. And when I would go visit my daughter, we'd go on those daddy and daughter dates. And we'd have dinner together. And she'd go to these places where she could make her own cups and ashtrays and paint on them and stuff like that. I'm proud to say that my daughter's now 27 years old. And the other day I was over there and she's sitting across from me. And she's got her mom's earrings on. She's got her ball bearing in her head. And she's got a ball bearing in her nose. And got a tattoo around her neck. And, you know, she's sitting across from me. And she says, Daddy, what are you staring at? And I said, the most beautiful little girl I've ever seen in my life. Now, where would I get that from? Sitting in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous with you. Because week after week, day after day, in my home group, I sponsor these guys, and they've got earrings and tattoos and bandanas and hats on backwards. And behind every tattoo, there's an alky in there. And behind every one of her little piercings, there's a little girl in there, and that's who I talk to. And the most important thing about that is simply this. What would happen if you can't handle the tattoo? What would happen if you yell at her because of the piercing? What would happen because you don't like the new parrot on her arm or something like that, and you yell at her and you betray her and you put her down? What would happen? Simply this. One day something's going to happen to this little girl and she's going to need to talk to you. She's going to have to go to her daddy. She's going to have to tell her her daddy this stuff. And the minute she gets ready to open up her mouth, she's going to think, uh-oh, he couldn't handle the tattoo. How is he going to handle this? You and my sponsor told me, shut up. Shut up. There's going to come a time when she'll be upset about the tattoo herself. Don't ruin the chance to be useful later. And she's sitting across from me, and she tells me that she's in love with this man, and she's been in love with him for a year now. And, and I, you know, she says, I know you know who he is, but he came over to the house last night, and he was crying, Dad. And I said, why is that? He says, because he was divorced, and he has a little girl, and he's afraid that now that he's divorced and seeing me, the little girl's going to forget him. And he started crying, and he got us scared. And I said, well, what did you tell him? She says, it was easy, Daddy. Because I told him to write his little girl every month, to go see that little girl often and take her out to paint ashtrays and make her own little coffee cups, have daughter and daddy dates. And she said, John, if you do that, I know for a fact that little girl will never forget you. You guys are the highlight of my life. I am so happy to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm so happy that you guys have privileged me to be a part of you tonight. My sponsor, Johnny, tells me, Larry, he said, I don't need, you don't need to seek my approval anymore. There's nothing you can do that would make me love you anymore, and there's nothing you can not do to make me love you any less. I just love you. All I want you to do is carry the message. He says, I've never had any sons. He says, but if I had one, you'd be it. And all I need you to know, son, is that your father will always love you. I will always love you. What amazing place to be 
Were you okay being you? The miracle of my life is that the search is over. I don't have to go anywhere else to get anything else done. Everything I need to make me happy I have found in Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything that hinders my happiness will be removed by the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. The great search is over. We've been searching our entire life, and now we're together and we have found our answer. I don't know that much about God, if you knew. I don't know much about spirituality and, and all that stuff, but I can tell you this. On a Saturday night in Indianapolis, I see table after table and row after row of people who should be locked up dead or insane. And look at us tonight. Look at us all weekend. We're happy and we're joyous and we're free. I never have to wonder what he looks like, and I never have to wonder what he sounds like. I am in the evidence of a power greater than myself. I am in a living evidence, and you can't deny your eyes. All my life I've been a seeker of, you know, of, of prove it to me, a stickler, if you will. And I've got the proof that I need right here, the living evidence. So if you're new, don't you ever worry about where he's at or what you should do. Come back and play in the evidence one more day. Thank you for having me. Thank you.